I think we should be worried. I mean, I still believe that, that trading makes for a better world, and I think globalization has been scapegoated for a lot of domestic policy failures in rich countries. What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortevek of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortevek. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today we will be discussing the question, is the future of trade regional? Now, what do we mean by this? In a nutshell, the question is, are we moving away from globalization and more towards regionalization of trade? There are a couple of reasons why we might be doing so. Firstly, post-COVID, a lot of attention is being paid to supply chain resilience, giving greater attention to decoupling or reshoring or nearshoring. Secondly, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, is in crisis. Multilateral negotiations are going nowhere, but we do see the emergence of regional trade agreements like USMCA and plurilateral agreements like the CPTPP. Thirdly, there are geopolitical factors accelerating this trend, growing tensions between the United States and China, and geopolitical spheres of influence may start to turn into economic ones. And finally, simply put, the nature of trade may be changing, and regional value chains may become more important than global value chains in the future. So, is the future regional? To take a closer look at this, I'm joined by three fantastic thinkers in the field. I'm very pleased to welcome Wendy Cutler from Washington, D.C. Wendy is vice president at the Asia Society Policy Institute, ASPI, and the managing director of the D.C. office. Here, she works on addressing challenges related to trade, investment, and innovation, as well as women's empowerment in Asia. Previously, she had a career as a diplomat and negotiator in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, where she also served as acting deputy USTR. Secondly, I'm joined by Martin Sanbu. Martin is the Financial Times' European economics commentator. He also writes Free Lunch, the FT's weekly newsletter on the global economic policy debate. It is very much a must-read for all of you out there. He is also the author of three books, most recently, The Economics of Belonging, A Radical Plan to Win Back the Left Behind and Achieve Prosperity for All. And finally, from Singapore, I'm joined by James Crabtree. James is the executive director of IISS Asia, where, amongst other things, he leads a research team focused on the Asia-Pacific. James is the author of The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. Before that, he spent time in academia and journalism covering the region. So today, 
We have economics, trade, and geopolitical expertise joining me, which is the perfect mix to talk about the dynamics that are or aren't leading to regionalization of international trade. Now, Martin, let me first ask you whether you indeed think that regionalization is the future. I do think regionalization is the future. And I think that in part because I think regionalization is also part of the past. Globalization, as we've known it, is actually more regionally organized than we often think. If you drew a map of cross-border trade relations, just the intensity, the volume of trade between pairs of countries, you'll find that it looks like three regions. By far, the most intense trade relations are centered in North America, centered on the US with its nearby countries, in Europe, centered on Germany and the whole EU and the near neighborhood, and Asia centered on on China. Of course, there is a lot of trade between these regions, and we hear a lot about US-China trade, EU-China trade, and so on. But still, the bulk of trade relationships happen within regions. It's international, but it's regional. And that's even more true if you think about the the more highly value-added trade. So we're already quite regional, more than we realized. uh, And I think that will remain so and probably intensify. We'll probably talk a lot about this um, in, in this podcast. But all the reasons for concentrating things at a regional level, I think, are intensifying at the moment. So yes, I think the future is fairly regional. And Wendy, what does this look like from your perspective? Well, I think there are trends towards regionalization, but I wouldn't sign off globalization. Take a a sector like semiconductors. Even if you wanted to regionalize that sector and bring the different parts of the supply chain to separate regions, as everyone's learning, that's a pretty tough task given the globalized nature of that sector. So I would put that constraint on the table. I think it's sector by sector. You look at autos, I think USMCA really showed that in North America, there is a value chain, a supply chain on autos, and USMCA is just going to promote more auto production within the North American region. So I think we need to look at this sector by sector before we reach any conclusions about the trends. And, and, and James, I mean, Martin is basically saying it's back to, back to the future. Wendy says we need to look at this sector by sector and don't write off globalization. Where do you come out on the question of whether the future is regional? I think Martin's right that globalization has always been about regionalization. But I think what fundamentally is going on here is the degradation of a, a brief period in history in which people who were trying to trade, companies and nations, could keep a reasonable amount of separation between their country's economic rules and their geopolitical interests. And so increasingly, as geopolitical competition heightens up, particularly between the US and China, but also between all sorts of other countries, you're seeing it's much less easy to create economic rules through institutions like the WTO that will keep trade separate from other forms of national and global interests. And so to some extent, after the financial crisis and after COVID, people thought, all right, there's clearly a a pattern here for less globalization. And so what we might then do is we'll take a step back and regionalization will be where we end up. 
But actually, in many cases, it'll end up being much more complicated than that, particularly as geopolitical competition heats up. And the case of semiconductors and bifurcation over technology is a good example of that. That's not something that's going to break down neatly on regional lines between you know, the European Union and East Asia and North America. It's going to cut across a whole range of different ways in which we've understood the global trade system. So yes, a good bit of regionalization, less globalization as we've known it, but not quite as simple as that. Like kind of a messy form of fragmentation that we're that we're talking about, or is it is it more benign than that? I'm I'm trying to trying to understand what does this this more regionalized or or fragmented or bifurcated trade world look like? Is this a a world where we have competing economic blocks with their own geopolitical dynamics, or is it like I say, is it more messy? I don't think fragmentation is the right word because, you know, picking up on some, something James said, it's as if we had a fairly regionalized globalization to start with, but that was unintentional. That's just how the economic logic worked. And we may be moving towards a trend of regionalization by design for political reasons. But Wendy is right. We have to look sector by sector and those political reasons are very different sector by sector. But Apart from the political shifts, the economic logic of globalization, of scale, of, of specialization, all of that is still there. So I'm saying it's not fragmentation because I think you'll continue to see more intensified cross-border value chains within regions. So you see deepening of trade inside of Europe. You see deepening of trade inside of North America and, and certainly deepening of trade from a sort of less integrated starting point in Asia. So, you know, more globalization at a regional level, but maybe maybe fracturing is a better word than fragmentation, sort of fracturing into three pieces, but not, not a sort of pulverization and going back to national self-sufficiency. I don't believe in that. Talk about messy. I, I think what we're going to see is just the emergence of more kind of ad hoc coalitions of countries coming around specific issues and less kind of neat silos or neat groups of countries working on a lot of issues together. And I would also add, I think we're going to see countries looking to just diversify their trading partners more and more, which I would argue could almost argue against regionalization. So take a Canada and Mexico. What they learned during USMCA is we are over-dependent on the United States, and therefore the United States has so much negotiating leverage over us. So I don't think it was any accident that they were founding members of CPTPP and have pursued trade agreements with Europe and with Asia. So I would just put that aspect on the table as well. I think at a, at a very crude level, I like to speak in crude generalizations, in the, the high period of globalization in the 20 years prior to the financial crisis, you had two forces pulling in the same direction to create the, the value chains that trade economists talk about. And Martin just mentioned the, the kind of crisscrossing networks that linked multinational companies, about 200 multinational companies, which was where most of global trade occurred. And part of that was technological and part of it was policy. And they both pushed in the same direction for 20 years in that, that high period. So the technology often wasn't anything terribly complicated. It could just be spreadsheets and fax machines, early email that allowed you to decentralize production. And then you had political agreements, global, then when the global stuff began to stall, then regional and intra-regional. 
And I think what you're seeing now is the technological side of things is still pushing ahead, particularly on the services side, creating all sorts of new opportunities. But the political side is much more complicated. There are some areas of the world and some institutions which are still putting forward, as Martin said, within some regions, the European Union is one. Also, the European Union continues to strike trade deals with other partners around the world. So you have some policy forces for deepening, but then plenty of other policy forces pushing in the other direction, some of which are to do with crude nationalism, some of which flow out of the after effects of the pandemic, some of which are to do with great power competition. And so the you you were asking, you know, where does this take you to? And the answer, I think, is I have no idea. I don't think any of us really do. A lot of it depends on how the geopolitics shakes out over the next 10 or 20 years. But that basic pattern of technology still pushing in the direction of integration, but policy, in a sense, pushing in different directions all at once is is a kind of more complicated world than the one that we were used to before the financial crisis. Well, it does sound a lot a lot more complicated than this this neat kind of one single pathway which we were on during perhaps the heydays of 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 globalization. The, the question I have perhaps also to you Martin, I mean you you study global economic trends, global economic policy is is to what extent is this really a feature of simply the changing nature of trade? Earlier we touched on the whole question of regulatory competition. It's always interesting to focus on the geopolitics and on the great power clash, but to what extent is this simply a consequence of the the changing nature of, of production and of consumer preferences? Well, let's avoid the word simply, but, but <laughs> apart from that, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. A, a lot of this does have to do with the changing nature of production. Uh, let's put it that way. That's happened before. The globalization we've known over the last couple of decades had to do with trade shifting from being trade in either raw materials or finished products, which is what it was until the mid-80s, to a point where most trade is in unfinished, semi-processed products in these long value chains where you do one phase of the production in one country, the next phase, the next stage in another country, and so on. So uh, already we have seen that the changing nature of production affects how trade policy and by extension, economic policy and economic politics are done. What's happening now is that more and more of the value added in an economy is moving from goods production to services production, and those services are easier to trade, certainly technological services. And even within goods production, more and more of the value is actually in digital technological services. Think about a car produced today. A big part of the value is the tech services, the digital services, the navigation, soon enough autonomous driving but even now you know the sort of thing that will calculate your range based on your driving patterns that's processed somewhere the software that helps you back up without crashing into a car that's uh, you know it's a boon for lots of drivers including myself it's processed somewhere right and that's an increasing part of the value services are an increasing part of the value of something as material as a car now services are regulated because services, they affect much more how we live. It's very visible in data. Anything that processes data about where you move, for example, sticking with mobility and the car example, is possibly it can be abused. It's, uh, you know, it's very sensitive. It's obvious that governments and their citizens want this to be regulated. But if the data is processed somewhere else, well, then you have to think about who is in control. A physical good, you can always stop at the border and check it. 
you know, you can you can check a toy from China and see if it has lead paint on it. You can't really check what happens to your data once it crosses your border. So that's the reason why, in the absence of some movement towards common regulation or trust, you will probably see regulatory barriers that will force more of this economic activity to happen within not national borders, but within regions that trust each other. And the EU is is the most prominent example here. But you see a lot of trade diplomacy at the moment really is about, can we find compatible modes of regulation so that we can trust one another? Yeah, I mean, it's a great example of this interplay between between policy and technology. So if you think back to a year ago and the debacle over TikTok in the US, which isn't essentially a kind of trade story, but that was a, an issue about personal data where American politicians found it unacceptable that data, often trivial data, on teenagers sharing videos could, under certain circumstances, be shared with a Chinese parent company. But imagine your Jaguar Land Rover, a British car company owned by an Indian parent that sells a lot of its cars in China. Well, no particular problem with that from a trade point of view. But as soon as you add this data layer, then it suddenly becomes very difficult for this British Indian-owned car company to sell cars in China and take that data out of China and process it in some other center or vice versa, because that ceases to be politically acceptable. And and so that in the Indian case, India probably becomes its own region where it will require its own data standards. And, and the same will be true in other areas as well. So it, it's an interesting area where efficiency would suggest that you know, you should have an open market in data shared, you know, shared globally, where you can move things to Singapore or Switzerland or New York. But that, I think, is very unlikely. At every opportunity where governments have had the chance to clamp down on the sharing of data and make exceptions for national security or all sorts of other things, they have done so. And I think they're going to continue to do so. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on is the future of trade regional with Wendy Cutler, Martin Sanbu, and James Crabtree. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break. We're going to continue our conversation with Wendy Cutler, Martin Sanbu, and James Crabtree about the question, is the future of trade regional? It's very tempting to think about this fracturing, if that's the right term, in geographic terms. But to what extent is this fracturing not taking place inside companies, where companies are going to have to decide how they serve particular markets? And that that means that they have to abide by certain different regulatory 
standards. I mean, a European car company wants to sell cars both to European consumers and to Chinese consumers. Perhaps, Wendy, you want to come in on this, but the thinking behind this is that some of this fracturing might actually not be visible because it's taking place inside inside companies themselves. I couldn't agree more. And it's it's happening now because there are different regulations on housing data within borders. And you look at multinationals, including U.S. companies that are operating in China, they are setting up their own data centers in China, recognizing they need to keep that data within that country. And therefore, they'll need different data centers elsewhere. So this is happening real time. And, you know, based on what James just said, I think we're going to be seeing more and more of this. The question is, at what point does this just become untenable? Because it's not just Asia, Europe, North America. You may be talking country by country by country. And then the costs of doing business are exorbitant and companies then have to figure out how many markets do they want to be in or can they afford to be in? It's not all about tech. Tech is the most obvious way in this this sort of shift in what we produce that that moves it into more contested space. But it's not the only thing. Think about other services, finance. It's it's always hard to come to trade agreements on financial flows because the way you run a financial system can blow up your whole economy. So if you are dependent on finance from a different country that's regulated in a different way, you are taking on risk. Even standard goods are becoming more more contested. So we see in terms of climate change, uh, Consumers and citizens are much more concerned about the carbon footprint of a production method. And so are businesses because they may be facing different competitive environments in terms of carbon pricing, for example, in different parts of the world. Or ethical standards. You know, human rights in Xinjiang is your ethical cotton. The EU imposed some animal standards on eggs imported from the Mercosur countries and they're still to be completed or ratified trade deal with that bloc. So there are a lot of examples of things moving into contested space. And that's, I think, what makes trade integration politically harder than in the past. Does that also mean that trade agreements are going to be either much more regional or much more difficult to, to reach? Well, as a former trade negotiator, the introduction of more and more regulatory issues within a trade negotiation presents enormous challenges. I've seen this firsthand when you bring regulators to the negotiating table. You know, they're fine if you want to regulate other countries, but the minute that they have to put restrictions on what they could do, then they want a lot of exceptions. And so I think what's happened in negotiating trade agreements is that more and more, as the subjects have moved to move to regulatory issues, these deals are harder and harder to conclude. And so I think this raises a question of, you know, where we're going with respect to trade negotiations. And on top of that, we have the challenge of political views on trade agreements, not just in the U.S., but other countries looking at whether these deals really benefit them. India, for example, they look at the trade agreements they've concluded and they think that they've lost. They've lost out. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if that's, you know, how they're measuring it. But, you know, this is a challenge going forward. And, but, but this raises this question about the, the, the geopolitical dimension of regionalization or fracturing and, and how free trade agreements are also used to generate strategic or geopolitical leverage. I mean, I note that in USMCA, there is 
a clause which makes it more difficult or at least raises questions if one of the parties to USMCA wants to strike a deal with with China. Non-market economy, China not mentioned. Okay, well, (laughs) (laughs) there you go. The country, that must not be known. Europe at the same time is, is, is also introducing initiatives that come across as quite economically nationalist by saying we need a European Chips Act. In AUKUS, the US-UK-Australia Defence Pact that was announced a couple of weeks ago, there is also a technology and industrial dimension included, particularly in terms of cooperating in in, in artificial intelligence and quantum technologies. So how does the geopolitics impact uh, this? I think if you if you were to take the regional argument, then Asia starts off by being a very good example because it's the place that you've seen the two big new regional trade agreements formed in the last decade. So the first, the CPTPP, which happened despite America flouncing out at the last minute, and then RCEP, which was meant to have both China, India, and Southeast Asia, but ended up with just China and Southeast Asia and a few others. So that looks like a good case for the the regionalizers. But if you look at what's happening with CPTPP at the moment, it's very far from a situation in which countries are looking at trade agreements and thinking, all right, rationally, how should we expand this in order to increase the net payoff from building a trade agreement? China has asked to join for reasons that are unclear, but probably not to do with economic growth, more to do with with geopolitics. Britain has asked to join for reasons that are to do with kind of not replacing the European Union, but but a kind of romantic post-Brexit policy. It's not clear that the CPTPP and its expansion is going to be driven by any sort of economic logic. There's all sorts of weird geopolitics in this, particularly the position of the US, which historically has been a kind of trade leader and architect in Asia and has now almost entirely given up that role, despite Wendy and a few others' uh, noble efforts to keep it on track. So it's neither clear that you have a kind of neat regional overlay in the way that that agreement might expand, and it, it probably will expand, nor is it being driven particularly by an economic logic. There's all sorts of different kind of geopolitics at play. And that gets back to what I said at the beginning. You know, you had an era in which trade rules and geoeconomic rules were to some important degree kept separate from one another. Countries sort of agreed that they weren't going to mess around too much geopolitically in the economic sphere. And that is increasingly not not the case. There, there's... Um, a much rawer geopolitical component to the way that countries are, are thinking about these these regional agreements in Asia. Wendy, you're the panelist who's closest to the fire in Washington, D.C. How is Washington viewing this semi-geopolitical, semi-economic initiative called CPTPP develop, particularly in the context of, of China's and Taiwan's announcement that they, that they want to join CPTPP? So there's not one uniform Washington here. People like me, people in think tanks and former officials, we're very concerned as a generalization. Some in the administration are concerned. Some are are not terribly concerned because they don't see a pathway for China meeting the standards and getting into the agreement. But I think it has been a wake-up call. But the the dilemma for Washington is, is what is its response? 
And, you know, the the natural response would be for the U.S. to say, hey, we want in too. But that's not going to happen. Politically, we're not there. And whether we'll ever be there remains to be seen. The next response is, hey, we can't do CPTPP, but hey, here's another initiative we want to put forward, maybe on digital trade, maybe in another area. And I'm hopeful that that's a response that we will be pursuing and announcing in the short term, because without our own kind of affirmative trade agenda, market opening rules based, we don't really have a lot to say in this debate. We're not members. Who are we to say who should join or not join? That's up for the other members to decide. Now, I'm sure some of the existing CPTPP members would want us in the agreement just because they could hide behind us in terms of responding to China's bid. But now they're going to have to figure out on their own how to respond. And particularly with Taiwan's bid, this has become quite complicated. It raises this broader question how the big trading blocs respond to each other's expansion of their, for lack of a better word, their economic sphere of influence or regulatory sphere of influence. And I would just say, so is your response, you try and stop that expansion or you create your own path? And I would say it's always better to kind of create your own initiative or own path forward, have an affirmative response. That seems to work much better than trying to trip your competitor these days. So that's the U.S. And and how is Europe approaching this, uh, Martin? Well, I, I think if you think about the the world as it is that Europe is trying to navigate in and, and the other blocks, it's not just the geoeconomics or geopolitics affecting trade and the economy, but the other way around, right? So, so we were talking about how regulatory standards are really the big issue in trade. To the extent that they're different, they hinder trade. To the extent that they can either be harmonized or mutually recognized, they allow you to trade. And the economic logic, as I said, for more global trade is still there. You can, everyone can make more money, right? If you trade at bigger scale, bigger markets and so on. What that means is that there is a sort of economic logic pushing towards converging on some common standards within a sector, more globally across sectors, all of tech. And Europe is very much trying, very conscious that it would like those standards to be its standards. Because the question is, if there's convergence on standards, whose standards are we converging on? So there's a phenomenon known as the Brussels effect, which is it's, you know, it's very popular in Brussels these days, basically means that because of the size of the EU single market, companies in other countries decide to, you know, let's just follow European safety standards, material standards, whatever it is. Since we want to sell into the EU anyway, let's just do that for all our production. So there's a sort of Uh, free imperialism, if you like, by having high standards inside the European market, other countries start adopting the same for the sake of access. And that's becoming kind of instrumentalized. You see it very much in tech regulation. GDPR, the data privacy rules, there was a hope that other countries would follow. Wendy will probably know better than me, but I understand California has adopted something kind of in the same direction. When you listen to policymakers and legislators in the EU today working on two big pieces of legislation, the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act. They very much hope that this will become a global standard. And the final point about that is that Europe is no longer alone about this, right? It used to be that either European or US standards dominated kind of by default because especially the US was the big economic player, the single big economic player in the world. Now, There are many powers who can play this game, including China. 
it goes sometimes goes a bit below people's radar, but China is very active in standard-setting bodies, for example. These very boring technical bodies that decide exactly, you know, how thick a particular piece of wire has to be. You know, now it's more digital standards. Because, again, they also see that with the size of the internal market that China has, if you can be the first mover on a standard and people say, well, this is where we can sell the most, let's adopt that standard, that gives you an advantage. So I think both Europe, both China, I think the US is a little bit late to the game, but probably getting there too. This sort of competition over standards is really what's going to define a lot of the trade agenda in the next decade. Now, I'm old enough to remember the TTIP negotiations, and a lot of what you're saying was also put forward as a rationale for for stronger US-EU regulatory convergence or even harmonization, as, as it was called. We've just seen the first glimpse, perhaps, of growing transatlantic cooperation in the so-called Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council. Should we get our hopes up that that is going to deliver in terms of developing a transatlantic regulatory space? Because that might serve as a nice balance to this massive one billion plus market that China has where it's able to promote its own standards and regulations. My two cents would be that we shouldn't get our hopes too high up. We're not going to get regulatory harmonization between the US and the EU, and they, they said as much during their first meeting. But on data, at least, my reading is that the US public, and to some extent the politics, have shifted in a very European direction, uh, a disillusionment with what some of the US big tech giants have been doing with our data. And so that there's, there's, there's more common views, I think, on how data should be regulated, plus the prize that to the extent the US and the EU can coordinate somewhat, that's two against one as opposed to three different blocks. Uh, and that completely changes the global space. And James and Wendy, how is the mood in, in Asian economies that if the US is out of the game, not interested in joining CPTPP, and maybe perhaps focusing a bit of its energy on, uh, on some sort of regulatory dialogue with the EU, that Asian economies simply have only one option available, and that's to join the China-dominated club. Yeah, I think that, that that's basically the pattern of the last 20 years, which is China's economic influence in this region is growing and will continue to grow on most reasonable assumptions. That doesn't mean that, you know, were the US to, to really make an effort, it still has, even if it's lost its role as the kind of gravitational force on trade in goods and services for most countries, it still has a, a lot of architectural power, could have, in terms of standard setting and rulemaking and, and governing in particular the way the next generation of technologies can be can be developed and traded. So at the moment, I think you you have countries in the region looking around and hoping in many cases that the US is going to come back and play that role as a counterweight to China. Some in particular, like the Japanese, desperately hoping that, that it's going to come. But in the end, there's not very much sign of it at the moment because the domestic politics of trade in the US are so toxic that it makes it extremely difficult to imagine 
in a sense, the, the Wendy Cutler side of the argument winning out in the short term. Who knows what will happen in the medium term? The role of Europe in the midst of this is rather curious because in a world in which most countries are becoming more political in their trade agenda, Europe still has this very Jesuitical approach to trade in which it's not actually willing to do what its leaders say they want to do, which is to run a more geopolitical Europe. So at a very basic level at the moment, there's clearly an enormous opportunity for the European Union to come in and replace the United States, find some way of integrating the European Union trade bloc more closely with the CPTPP. In theory, that should work brilliantly because it would provide the counterbalance to China that most in the region want. But technically, that's very difficult because you know the CPTPP was designed originally by the Americans. Europe has a different philosophical approach to trade. It's quite difficult from a technical level to mesh the two systems together. You don't see anybody talking about the fact that you know the European Union should find a way to 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 move into that space that has been vacated by the U.S. So I, that just shows you that at the technical level, what sometimes looks good in theory is extremely difficult to achieve in practice. But we should say that the EU has free trade agreements bilaterally with pretty much all the CPTPP members, or is negotiating them. There's a question in my mind: to what extent trade can be neatly compartmentalized? So yes, there are a lot of bilateral trade agreements between the EU and, and, and Asian countries. We've talked a little bit about USMCA, about, about regulatory cooperation. But at the same time, if I listen to the UK's new foreign secretary, who recently made the case that the UK is interested in signing deep security and trade partnerships, I was struck this morning reading the news that India and Taiwan are in uh, discussions about setting up a semiconductor supply chain that that is very much also infused with concerns about the security environment. Again, the AUKUS Defense Pact, which I mentioned, which does connect both technology and traditional military balancing. So are we at risk of, of, of thinking that this is primarily a trade or economic issue? And perhaps this is also the question for Wendy. The U.S. may be absent when it comes to trade agreements in in the Asia-Pacific, but it definitely has a security role to play. And so is there any realization in Washington that these two might actually go hand in hand? So the geopolitical overlay is always there in trade agreements, okay? When you even pick your trading partners you want to negotiate with, geopolitics plays a role. And so this notion that, you know, all of a sudden the geopolitics is becoming, you know, a new aspect of trade agreements, I think that's not the way to look at it. But I do think as economic security issues become more paramount and technologies are no longer compartmentalized between commercial technologies or, you know, military technologies, all of this is changing. And as we look to trade agreements going forward, my question is, are like traditional trade agreements really the way forward? So in the WTO and GAP, for, you know, we saw big, big negotiating rounds for years and years, and Doha kind of showed that that model doesn't work anymore. In many respects, I think the free trade agreement model is kind of getting to the point where it's diminishing returns. A lot of partners are running out of other partners to reach these deals with. And for certain countries like the United States, they're just politically toxic to do. 
So I think going forward, we're going to see more and more of what I would call kind of plurilateral issue-specific agreements, either on a functional basis like IPR or on a sectoral basis like semiconductor supply chains. But again, more kind of ad hoc agreements, partial agreements. Now, a lot of the you know traditional trade folks will say this is a horrible development. This is going to lead to more fragmentation, more trade distortion. We need to do this all multilaterally. And my response is, I think those days are over. And so we all need to be more pragmatic going forward and also pragmatic with respect to how we're, the approach we're using vis-a-vis trade agreements but also pragmatic with respect to how the geopolitical element factors into trade agreements. I think there's an element to which some of the things that Wendy has said have always been true. So if you look at the genus of the CPTPP, for instance, I mean, it started out with a rag bag of small countries, including I think Singapore and New Zealand, sort of talking about doing something, and then it sort of grew over time. And I think Wendy's right that that's more likely to be the way that you're going to see these agreements develop in future. So if you look at something like DEPA, which is a, a digital series of small trade agreements in, in this part of the world, that may or may not prove to be a model for the digital trade agreement that the United States may or may not be cooking up at the moment, which may or may not be the first step to the United States re-engaging in trade in, in Asia in a more serious way. And I think in, in other respects, Martin mentioned climate and carbon and the way that not in the next 12 months, but over the next five or 10 years, that's going to become an enormously significant change in the way that the global trading system will work, which I think many businesses have simply not really factored in yet. And the way that that works also is unlikely to take place in this sort of top-down, big regional sense. So yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I, th- I think the, the problem is that you have two communities and it was ever thus that there's a security community which doesn't really understand the way that trade agreements work. And therefore, you know, if you're a security hawk on China, you would say, well, it's impossible. No one, of course, we wouldn't let China into the CPTPP. And actually, there's lots of people within the CPTPP who see perfect logic in China coming in from an economic point of view. And then you have the trade people who don't really understand geopolitics and still like to negotiate their their schedules and agreements and, and can't really understand why countries might want to block others from trade-enhancing measures. And so I, I guess the as, as these two worlds move together, you'll, this geopoliticization of trade, hopefully you'll see a bit more of a dialogue between the people who do security policy and the people who negotiate trade agreements. Thanks for that, uh, James. I have one final question for, uh, for the three of you, and that is, to what extent should we be worried about this trend? I mean, I was raised in the good old days of deepening globalization. And I was taught at university that economic interdependence is good, that it creates economic and political benefits. It leads to a certain amount of predictability that international institutions can help promote trust. But if you're correct and that we're moving to this world of, let's call it complex fracturing, where there is institutional breakdown, where there are economic spheres of influence, where there are competing regulatory systems, and frankly, where there is a lot of anxiety and concern about the other. I mean, is this, should we be worried? 
I think we should be worried. I mean, I still believe that that trading makes for a better world. And I think globalization has been scapegoated for a lot of domestic policy failures in, in rich countries. There's a perception that the problems of the left behind, which every Western country has, were largely caused by globalization. I don't think that's true. Global trade integration didn't help those people, but they were left behind by misguided policies and changes in the economic structure that would have happened even without globalization, I think. And, you know, if you turn against trade, you do turn against multilateralism. They kind of go together. It's very hard to have a harmonious, multilateral, integrated political system, but say we're not going to trade with one another. So uh, I, I am worried. But, you know, this is why I think the the kind of base case scenario is towards more regionalization, because at the regional level, it seems like we still are able to trust one another and therefore intensify a deepen economic integration. So my my sort of optimistic twist on this is that if we can keep in mind that there's still great economic and political logic to trading globally, if we do get to further integration in all of these new sectors we've talked about, it will have been because we managed to start to agree on how we govern those sectors. It will have been because we come to some understanding and convergence on how to regulate tech. Now, we may not. There may be genuinely different preferences in the US, in Europe, in China. But if we get there, it will have been because we managed to to talk to one another and get some agreement on those issues. I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a danger in all of this, which is the, the sort of the trade lobby harkens back to a golden era, and that golden era was, I know, 2004, the, the height of the previous era of globalization, and that was the moment of all good things. But globalization in its fullest sense, as Martin writes about in his excellent book, The Economics of Belonging, was, I mean, that, that period of globalization was very flawed. It came along with rising inequality, financial instability, and, you know, environmental problems that we're only beginning to understand. So I don't think we should sort of harken back to, to a sort of glorious uh, lost era. As Martin says, there's still a great logic to economic integration, but there's also opportunities to come up with different ways of managing that, which might be more egalitarian and, and less threatening to the largest mass of, of people in the world, or rather people in the wealthier countries, people in, in uh, the integrated poorer countries did, did better out of this. Anyway, so that's just to say that I think the geopolitical trends that we see at the moment are worrying. I mean, we haven't even got to the stage where we might see military conflict between some of these countries, and that's perfectly plausible in the next 10 or 15 years. But it's not that the world that we're leaving behind was perfect either. And so as Martin says, you know, particularly on on climate and environment, you know, there's all sorts of areas now in which the challenge is to come up with a form of globalization, which is more sustainable than the one that we've left behind. I agree with what Martin and James just said. I think what's going to be key is kind of bringing all our citizens along with these policies. And we haven't done a great job in the past. And I look at the United States and I think we, I think the 2016 presidential election really underscored that you know, administrations, both Republican and Democratic, they were almost on autopilot on trade and they kind of lost the sense of where the population was. And so whether you need 
domestic measures, and I couldn't agree more with Martin. I think trade agreements are saddled with solving issues that they were never designed to to solve, right? So you need effective domestic measures. You need to, but you need also to be attuned to where public opinion is going, because in order to pursue any of these policies in an integrated world, you know, you need to have popular support, and in the United States case and other countries, legislative support. Those are all very useful insights and prescriptions. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. So Wendy Cutler, Martin Sanbu, James Crabtree, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me. Now, if you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash GTS. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm.